You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, hello, thank you for listening. It's Charlotte Greenway in for Nick. This is episode 757 of the Nick Luck Daily podcast and it's Tuesday the 6th of June. Plenty to get through on today's show and shortly we'll hear from Richard Gibson who confirms that this will be his final season training in Hong Kong. Then off to Ireland for more information on the thoroughbred sale of a Royal Ascot hopeful before Jonathan Harding updates us on the Animal Rising protester who broke onto the track at Epsom and was in court yesterday. Then something a bit different as we head to Sweden to learn more about their Grand National with their clerk at the course. And finally, Rachel Gowland of the British European Breeders Fund joins the show to explain how they fund their sponsorship of grassroots racing. First though, Lydia Hislop is alongside me and Lydia, first off, reflection on the weekend. Timeform ratings were released yesterday and Derby winner August Rodan was given a rating of 125p, whilst the second King of Steel given 124p. Roger Varian on yesterday's show mentioned the Irish Derby as an option alongside France for the second, whilst Racing TV reported that the winner is likely to head to the Curra. If they meet again, might it be a different story? I think it's interesting that because uh, he, there is a, a school of thought clearly that had he had the benefit of a prep run in the Dante, that he might have been a little bit sharper, a little bit more match fit, perhaps. Um, we can only speculate on, on, on that. Um, he obviously got upset in the stalls and was withdrawn um, before the Dante and ran on his seasonal debut, just his third career start in the Derby. It was a huge performance. He showed a really good turn of foot as well. Initial reaction was to wonder whether Kevin Stott had gone too soon. I don't think that actually bears scrutiny if you go back and, and look at it again. Um, August Rodin, of course, was also on a retrieval mission, having um, run so poorly in the 2000 Guineas when he did receive a, a brush early on. But uh, Aidan O'Brien was talking after the derby that the, the mile was the dodgy leg in many ways when they were talking about thinking about going for the, the Triple Crown and that August Rodin would have needed everything to go right and many, many different little things went wrong, which added up to, to quite a defeat. But he looked much more comfortable on a quick, quicker surface. And he also much looked much more comfortable at that kind of trip, 10 to, to 12 furlongs. And the two of them came a long way clear. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy seeing the two of them taking each other on again. And I, I hope that does happen um uh, on the uh, at the cover um it'll be it'll be very interesting um you know the uh, epsom can test stamina a lot more this perhaps not so much because this derby because it was quite steadily run it did mean that the, that those two horses were able to um stamp their authority on the race quite considerably despite that steady pace which says a lot of positive things about them however there i think there are a number of horses in the backwash that didn't handle the track at all, or certainly the track as it was riding on Saturday. An arrest, he certainly looked to be one of those, and it was reported in the Racing Post yesterday that he will be heading to the Irish Derby, although I would imagine that they'll be slightly on weather watch. 
On a more slightly disappointing note from Epsom, of course, the dash start this and the controversy surrounding that when four stalls open a fraction later than the others, um, those that came out the four stalls were declared runners by stewards on the day and there was nothing they said they could do. We had Steve Delemos, owner of the Favourite, on the show yesterday, um, who was obviously disappointed. Do you think there's anything the stewards could have done or should have done differently? At the moment, I think they probably couldn't have done anything differently because as was discussed yesterday by Nick and Cornelius, um, the stewards can act to declare a horse a non-runner if a horse is prevented from starting as a result of the faulty action of the stalls or if the rider is off the horse and obviously the latter doesn't apply here but prevented from starting I mean that's pretty clear no horse was prevented from starting it doesn't talk about a horse being materially affected Uh, and if we go back over over history uh, with this rule uh, the British Horse Racing Authority through uh, Brant Dunshay the chief operating uh, officer has tried to uh, address this a couple of times in recent history regular listeners I think will um, uh, remember the most recent one um, which was studying beauty but prior to that Harry Angel in the 2018 Diamond Jubilee at Royal Ascot he got one leg trapped over the running board in the stalls and his chance was materially affected and the the BHA tried to engage the industry and I think that Brant is on, on record in the number of conferences talking about this, um, tr- looking to get support from the British racing industry to align their rules with uh, uh, the international rules, which does allow the stewards some form of discretion where a horse's chance has been materially prejudiced as a result of something happening, e.g. the malfunctioning of the stalls. Um, and it further explains that these are the international rules that might apply in Australia and in Hong Kong. And there are some um, local differences between the two. But um, if a horse is placed uh, or gets prize money, um, is placed in betting terms or wins some prize money, then they're not declared a non-runner in that scenario. Um, it, that depends on the jurisdiction of the race. For example, so if uh, a horse has been had their chance uh, prejudiced at the start, uh, finishes in the first six in the group race, for example. They're st- although they might have finished closer, but for what is happening, then there's not adding insult to industry- injury by the rules requiring that horse to be a non-runner and therefore they don't even get their, I don't know, sixth place prize money. Um, but the industry, didn't. he didn't get broad support for that. Um, and then the, the second incident that happened was Stunning Beauty in the 2021 um, Kensington Palace at Royal Ascot. Um, that horse had the blindfold on when the stalls opened. It took nine seconds for the blindfold to be removed and eventually that horse was pulled up. Again, consultations from the BHA followed more formally on this occasion and the submissions back uh, were, not, were, were, not, were not generally in line. Now, I can understand what... Uh, perhaps bookmakers might feel about this. Uh, they might be worried about a proliferation of non-runners. How often does this actually, in fact, happen? It does it happen more regularly than high-profile cases that are very closely scrutinised, like those two incidents at Royal Ascot, like in the dash on Derby Day. And that I, th- I would imagine that bookmakers might be concerned that uh, declaring those horses a non-runner, the, the punters who uh, then have the winner and are due a return, you know, wouldn't appreciate a, a, a sudden proliferation of the Rule 4 rule being applied. Um, 
So there are things to 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 weigh up, but I would imagine that this conversation has to be opened up again. And from the British Horsing Authority's point of view, it might be worthwhile to look at how how often are we actually talking about. And also, I think there needs to be, if they do move towards it, more international harmonisation, there has to be some discretion for judgment from the stewards. So you know, a, a five furlong downhill dash, uh, the stalls opening fractionally later is a bit different from the stalls opening fractionally later, say, over two miles. So I think the industry would have to accept that there will be discretion from stewards in this and so that they will choose when they need to apply that. And sometimes consistency with those kind of rules, you know, the industry has become rather hidebound by that. But the other consideration is that of the standards of the stalls themselves. If you compare um, this rule to the rule of as I mentioned, in Hong Kong, which does allow for this discretion for a horse to be declared a non-runner if a horse's chance of materially prejudiced. Well, they've got their own set of stalls at Shatin and Happy Valley. They've even got a spare standby set in case something goes wrong, wrong with those. Those stalls are, as I understand it, serviced after every race meeting. Contrast that to Britain, where the same set of starting stalls are hoiked ho- ho- up and down the country to different race courses they stand on different surfaces on different topography all the time they're i i imagine they must be about 20 years old maybe they're maybe they're a little bit a bit younger i don't know how often they're serviced but i know that they're necessarily bashed around if they're going up and down motorways well you know if we are going to move towards this then it is beholden on the stalls actually functioning uh, correctly almost all of, of the time. You don't want this to be a, a proliferated problem. And that's going to require investment from the race courses or investment from the stalls operators. And that's another question for the British racing industry, not just the rule itself. Sticking with the Epsom theme, the animal rising protester who broke onto the track during the running of the Epsom derby on Saturday, Ben Newman, was in court yesterday where the Racing Post Jonathan Harding was present. John, how did it all unfold yesterday? So Ben Newman had already been remanded in custody after getting onto the track at Epsom, albeit very briefly before being apprehended by security and police. So he appeared at Guildford Magistrates Court and he has been charged with causing public nuisance. He pleaded not guilty to that charge and represented himself at Guildford Magistrates yesterday. He then requested that his case be heard by the Crown Court after the prosecution pushed for it to be dealt with via a summary trial at Magistrates with a charge of that nature. It can be handled at either Magistrates or the Crown Court, but the defendant has the discretion to choose if they'd like it to be heard in front of a jury, which he did. Then there was the matter of whether he ought to be granted bail. The prosecution suggested that he he ought to remain in custody, and that was um, the the judges agreed with that on the day. So he has been refused bail as well. Um, he will now appear at Guildford Crown Court for a plea and trial preparation hearing on July 6th. So the case rolls on um, and he will have his case for cause or his charge of causing public nuisance, his case heard at Guildford Crown Court. And just in terms of who else was in the court, was there a lot of support for him in there? There was, there was was five or six people representing Animal Rising as well as um, Ben's mother was also there um, sitting and watching. There was a lot of thumbs up and support for him from the public benches. Um, 
it's interesting. It will potentially go beyond, of course, it's worth noting, go beyond the Crown Court. That's the criminal proceedings um, relating to this charge of causing public nuisance. But a spokesman for the Jockey Club on Sunday, which, of course, Jockey Club owns Epsom, said it was considering taking its own legal action against the individual who made it onto the course, um, as well as potentially seeking costs for extra security from animal rising. So it's it's a story that's going to roll on again. And, and the next chapter is July 6th, when he has this preliminary hearing. It's a, a uh, plea and trial preparation hearing, Guildford Crown Court on July 6th. Well, hopefully we won't see a repeat of anything like that at Royal Ascot in a couple of weeks' time. One horse who could have a major shout in the newly named Group 1 Queen Elizabeth II Jubilee Stakes on the Saturday is Hong Kong Raider Wellington. And earlier today, his trainer Richard Gibson announced that he would not be extending his trainer's licence beyond this season in Hong Kong. Richard joins me on the line now. And Richard, you moved to Hong Kong during the 2011-2012 season. And since you've had a huge amount of success with the likes of Akeem Mafid, Gold Fun, Giant Treasure and Wellington, why have you made this decision now? Well, you know, it's, it's just it's, it's a good time for me professionally and it's a good time for my young family as well. Um, it was always always our intention to uh, finish up in Europe, and um, you know it sounds very corny, but you know you you you, you, you do feel honoured when you get the job here. You, you feel honoured, and how the Jockey Club run their amazing operation. I know a lot of your listeners have have seen the racing and and see how Hong Kong racing is showcased all over the world. So after twelve years, you know I'm ready to come back and. And certainly feel I've come back as I feel I've learned a lot and, and come back a more accomplished horseman. And I take it this will be a sort of 12 year period that you can look back on very fondly. Yeah, I guess the you know, the, the, the highlight must be winning the, the Hong Kong Cup. Um, you know, it's our biggest race here. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's it's the equivalent of, our you know, of, of um, you know, it's one of the biggest races in the world. So uh, that, that was definitely a standout moment. But uh, we were very proud of our uh, group, group one uh, record here. Uh, since I've been here, I think, well, I know we finished in the uh, top three of the uh, national standings in group one wins. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of, of what we've achieved but, and um, I'm much looking forward to the future. And you mentioned moving back to Europe. Have you made plans for your next step then? Well, we're quite um, we're quite canny in that uh, we, we have a house uh, right in the south of England in, in Kent, um, which is very close to France, which is, of course, my uh, my adopted country. So uh, I'm sure I'll be doing uh, lots of uh, Euro tunnelling uh, backwards and forth. So you're going to be based based in Kent. The yard will be there. It's a, no, no, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't talked about the yard. Uh-huh. I, I will be based in Kent. I will be based in Kent. So, but is is the plan to train to train when you come back? You know, we're just you know, it's, this is all brand new. You know, we're just keeping uh, options open and and, and all, already working on a few things. So, um, you know, it's exciting times to you know to take a breather. And I, I very much want to go back to Europe and do a very big tour. I would very much like to uh, spend a lot of time visiting the stud farms and stallions and and new training centres. So um, hopefully uh, some of your listeners will uh, allow me to come in and and have a good look around. 
Is the plan still to be back in the UK in a couple of weeks? I believe Wellington, he's got an entry in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes and it's a race you went yeah, very, very close with. Yeah, very much business as usual. We're in uh, full prep with Wellington at the moment. Um, uh, we we're very much doing the right thing by the horse. He's, he uh, was always our idea at the beginning of the year if he was in good nick to go for this race. Uh, we've just recently confirmed the jockey booking of, of Ryan Moore, which has, has given the, the team some, some good morale. And the horse will trial uh, here in Hong Kong on Tuesday, just an easy trial. And then, um, you know, we head on uh, seven days out, pretty good. And you're confident heading over or hopeful? You know, my horse uh, has clocked throughout his career a very good 1,200 metre times. Is uh, is. He's, he's still a very good horse. The, the only horse that could could beat him consistently here, uh, Winfred, uh, our CEO, describes as the best sprint in the world. So if, if we're only a length behind the best sprint in the world, um, you know, I would hope we'd be uh, competitive at Royal Ascot. Did it ever cross your mind to give him an entry in the five furlong race as well? Obviously, it's a stiff six at Ascot. It, that's, that's more of an Australian speciality than a... Um, than, uh, <laughs> I, I I I know my horse, and uh, I, I think the fire would be a bit sharp for him. And uh, I expect, you know, he's Group One winner over fourteen, and uh, the, the Ascot Twelve should should suit. A few years ago, uh, we brought over a horse called Gold Fun, who, who I thought was a bit unlucky in in running, and 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 was second in a in a beating a short distance. Richard, we wish you the best of luck for the future, and look forward to seeing you over here in well. 10 days time or so whenever you travel over uh, and I, I can't leave the Nick Leck podcast without saying thank you very much then Nick Leck podcast without them I I wouldn't be so well informed on on world racing news and uh, I thank you all for, for your work uh, we, we, all us listeners really appreciate your work thank you very much Richard Gibson there and jockey booking of Ryan Moore is pretty eye-catching for Wellington on his Royal Ascot mission Another horse that has Royal Ascot penciled in for his next start is Thunderbear, for whom Thoroughbid will be auctioning off a 50% share in on the 15th of June via their online platform. Thunderbear's trainer Jack Davison is with me now. Jack, first off, just tell us a bit about him as an individual. Uh, well, well, firstly, it's important, it's relevant to mention that he's a homebred, and so he's been he's been here since since day one. And um, you know, to to my family, uh, he himself was always a, a very very good looking horse, um, plenty of presence, and I was only delighted to, to get him to train. Um, you know, so he wasn't sold or didn't go to a year and trail Um So yeah, from the get go, he showed a lot of ability. Um, at two, it took it took us a while to get his head in front, um, but he all, always did. You know, in my eyes, he was my best two year old last year. And it just took him took him a while to get it together. Um, from I think the gelding the gelding procedure made a huge difference in him, and um, and really really turned him you know, really been been a benefit to him um, and a big part of him progressing so much from two to three. Um, and as well as that, we've we've removed the headgear um, in his last couple of runs, which is obviously obviously that's obviously been a thing. Um, he has. Gone up the ratings from 85 to 107 in, two, in the last two runs, and you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's still progressing. So, yeah, he's a really, really good flag there to have in the yard at the minute, and um, yeah, he's, he's just a good horse. 
So we know you're targeting the royal meeting with him, but what race are we likely to see him in? Um, yeah, so um, the plan is to step up to seven and win in Jersey on Saturday with Ascot. Um, I think that's the race for him. All his body would end up being a seven furlong horse um, on nice ground. And, um, you know, he's, you know, that's, that's really, uh, he's his run in the group three and the lack of that race. His last run, his best run. Um, he was a very close four to behind the Antarctic and he had Shara Tash just behind him. Johnny Merkel's good two years last year. Um, and in that race, he just wasn't, he wasn't stopping at the line. Um, so I feel like, I feel like we just get him up and trip and ride him a little bit more conservatively. Um, he likes to travel, he likes to travel, get in behind horses and, and travel strongly. So, yeah, I think that, I think set up in Jersey will really, really, um, he's going to get, you know, he's going to get the gap and he needs it because it's a good, you know, aspect obviously a very wide course and um, they tend to spit into a couple of groups. So, um, you know, hopefully we get a, we get, we get a smooth pass, passage in the run and we can hit the line really strong. And ground-wise, obviously over here at the moment, we look like we might be entering a heat wave and there's no rain forecast. Would he handle a quicker service if we don't sort of get the rain before then? For sure, for sure, Sean. Um, yes, yeah, if you look back at his win last year in Surrey House, he was good to firm ground. Um, he is a low action. He's a, he has a big stride. And for him to reach full flow, um, in my opinion, good, fast ground is, you know, allows him to do that um, you know, most efficiently. So um, I'll be looking forward to, to running in one of those conditions. Just going forward, looking ahead, what sort of campaign do you see him following for the rest of the season? Well, he's a horse that, uh, well, well, I do think he'll be, you know, effective on, on fast ground, probably most effective on fast ground. He's a horse that um, obviously improved on soft ground as well. Um, and then, you know, that was over six furlongs. Um, so, um, and, you know, the races like the Haydock Spring Cup might come into calculations um, if he were to keep progressing throughout the summer. Um, you know, that it's a, you know, there could be the possibility of a British champion sprint at the end of the season, uh, given the fact that uh, a stiff six on, on slower ground um, is, a, is within his remit. So, you know, he's quite, you know, he's quite versatile that way. And he's going up a lot from two to three, so he now races more professionally and more economically. So, I would have no reservations about going up a furlong um, on Patrick Brown as we're going to do a Royal Ascot or coming back or just sticking at six on, on, on floor ground and, um, you know, just considering that the horse is in a good kind of mind to, to, you know, to adapt to both at this, at this stage. Of course, a huge selling point about him at the moment is that he's going to Royal Ascot. It's an opportunity to have a runner at Royal Ascot for somebody. Will they be able to run him in their own colours, or is he going to remain in the pink and purple that he's in currently? Yeah, no, that's um, you know, that's absolutely fine. You know, um, uh, we we would only we would we would encourage somebody you know to run them to run the horse um, in their own colours. So that's absolutely fine by me and my partner. Um, I think it would be a part of the appeal and a part of part of the fun of a whole occasion. And as you alluded to there, to have a to have a live prospect of Royal Ascot. Um, or to partner up in one or buy into one, it's, you know, these opportunities don't come about that often. So, um, I think the colours will add to that as well. So, yeah. Well, Jack, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck. Oh, first off, on the 15th of June, when the sale takes okay. place on the Thoroughbred website, and then also, of course, in the Jersey at Ascot. Thanks for meeting, Charlotte.
Lydia is still with me and Lydia, yesterday you attended a webinar with a bit more detail on the recently revealed white paper. I did indeed. This was the law firm CMS, uh, which have uh, a specialisation in in the area of gambling and they held a white paper review webinar um, and uh, attending that was Tim Miller, who's the executive director of the Gambling Commission, Bridget Simmons, the chair of the Betting and Gaming Council, John O'Reilly, the CEO of Rank Group, and Dan Waugh, um, partner from Regulus Partners, and also Joanne Whitaker, who's the CEO from Betfred, as well as a couple of members of CMS. And they ran through a number of things deriving from the white paper, starting off with financial risk checks, which, of course, is the new name for affordability checks. And uh, it was noted that there had been a repeated use of the word frictionless in the white paper, and there was questions about how this would work in practice. Uh, the betting operators were to know what what was they were expected to do if a customer didn't complete um, these the, the the risk checks or, or declined to do that and um, and what if risks were flagged so essentially they were asking for some kind of guidance or greater guidance from the gambling commission um, and Tim Miller was saying basically you, you tell us what we need and we will we will give you um, some help uh, there was um an observation from Tim Miller that the Gambling Commission had never put in place a blanket approach to thresholds for affordability checks, uh, but he accepted that there had been confusion for some time around this, and he also acknowledged that the white paper thresholds were perhaps less restrictive than some individual operators have chosen to apply, and there seemed to be from the industry side of things, some confusion about what it is that they were required to do that during the consultation process, they would be seeking clarification from the Gambling Commission on that. Um, There was an observation that Andrew Rhodes, the chief executive of the the Gambling Commission, hadn't been particularly convinced or impressed by uh, the the Betting and Gaming Council and the horse racing industry's arguments and um, evidence that they had supplied to suggest that people would be driven to bet on the black market uh, rather than in Britain due to affordability checks. There seems to be some scepticism from Andrew Rhodes on that particular point and uh, the representatives of the betting industry pushed back on that. there, um, the, uh, the betting industry also asked the Gambling Commission um, to become um, a more authoritative, independent voice of gambling. Uh, they needed to be authoritative, trusted and impartial, uh, they argued, and that they should call out misinformation that had been allowed to proliferate over this um, over this issue during the course of the, of the endless internal white paper. Um, in terms of uh, customers wishing to spend more than the national average needing to supply information uh, for these affordability checks, there was a point being made that the national average is an undefined figure. So again, a call for more information, a call for more clarity from the industry. Um, then the sport of horse racing was particularly talked about, um, the rate of levy, uh, getting levy on non-British horse racing and whether the uh, levy should move to a turnover basis. And John O'Reilly from Rank was of the view that um, a turnover model was not a good idea. He prefers the, 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 the status quo because he felt that the status quo incentivised British horse racing to produce a competitive product. And he had some positive things to say about the recent announcement 
uh, for the 2024 fixture list. He felt that this was an example of the industry going in uh, the right direction. He was of the view that gaining a levy from international racing was essentially small beer. I suppose the point that was missed within this this webinar uh, from the horse racing perspective, and obviously it wasn't really concentrating horse racing in the same degree that we would, um, but you know, getting uh, income from international racing might allow British horse racing to arrange its fixture list um, so as to get a day off maybe for its workforce. Those are considerations that the industry has it has in mind, which are not which are particular to it as opposed to particular to the gaming industry. They also discussed the ombudsman, you know, how the, uh, an ombudsman might make determinations, what remedies they would be able to impose. Um, and, uh, and again, there was a call for a need to be clear for clarity of what the rules are going to be in this area. They also discussed advertising, the white paper what had to say on advertising and also about the general election and what impact, if any, that might have um, on on the white paper. And the view was that this consultation or this this um, uh, these conversations have been already had more widely and have been had with Labour as well um, as the Conservatives. I asked whether um, there would be um, guiding principles published by the Gambling Commission um, which would reassure betting customers that they were being dealt with fairly trans and transparently uh, when it came to and, con and consistently when it came to uh, financial uh, checks. And Tim Miller said that it is down to uh, DCMS, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, to design reasonably consistent principles that don't put too much burden on operators, that the gambling commission has to ensure that the rules are very clear and that they agree with the um, independent commissioner's office, the information commissioner's office, that betting companies must not use this information for other purposes. Um, and those purposes the gambling commission are suggesting is the risk appetite um, of bookmakers and essentially Tim Miller was saying that they quote recognize concerns that some cute consumers have about this being used to restrict um, certain punters or winning punters um, again uh, Bridget Simmons stressed that punters were most interested in this being frictionless um, and uh, I also asked whether uh, the betting companies themselves were the most most appropriate or credible organisations to carry out these financial checks. Tim Miller again made the analogy with um, in other financial services areas that it would be the organisation that would carry out these checks. Um, I would say that there are some differences there because obviously in, in other financial services there is an interest in uh, the uh, person applying, uh, uh, if that money is is a affordable and and b uh, properly sourced, that everyone's interests are in the same direction. In that, that you know somebody wants to buy something and uh, the person selling it wants them to buy it. It's not necessarily the end. The same in the uh, betting and gaming industry, where uh, unprofitable punters, winning punters, might not be the kind of customers um, that uh, the betting companies want. And again, this was referred to as risk appetite during the course of this webinar. Tim Miller did acknowledge that there is mistrust between uh, punters, essentially, and the betting industry and the gambling commission, and that it is their job collectively to build up public trust and confidence in that area. I found that very interesting, the fact that 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 was that mistrust was acknowledged and I'm hoping that um, palpable active steps can be made as a result of this consultation to make sure that the process is fair and transparent. 
Now, we don't spend much time talking about jumps racing at this time of the year on the podcast, but in just over 10 days on the 17th of June, Sweden will host their biggest jumps race, the Swedish Grand National. And here's Zander Brett with more. Great to be back at Stromsholm. I've been lucky enough to go to race courses right around the world, and I've got to say, Stromsholm is one of the loveliest I've ever been to, and certainly the Swedish Grand National is one of the best days racing I've ever been to. Probably not the most prestigious, but certainly the best atmosphere, and you call it Sweden's largest picnic. Yeah, because it is a big picnic. Lots of people come here. They've not perhaps not got go racing so much, but they come here and you're allowed to have your little picnic with beer or wine. Let's locate it for people who don't know Sweden. Closest city that sort of, well, with trains and everything is, is Vesteros. And there's an airport there as well. That's an airport, yeah. A tiny little one. <laughs> yeah, tiny, yeah. People try to get to Stockholm, oh, they're yeah. probably a bit miffed when they turn up in a field, yeah. but perfect for here. And by the way, the Swedish Grand National this year is on the 17th of June? Yep, 17th of June, Saturday. We always have it. The Saturday now before the big day in Sweden is midsummer. So it's party time all around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but <laughs> people, people that come here, they say, well, when the Grand National starts, that's when the summer starts. Yeah, I yeah. like that. And look, this area, I mean, it really is an unknown horse capital of Sweden and Scandinavia. And it's a long equine history with the military, the Royal Riding School here. Well, I mean, it's, been, it's been horses here from, well, 1500-something, you know, Gustav Vasa, one of our oldest kings, had breedings areas around here but from 1868 until 1960 for 100 years this was a training center for the, all the officers and after that it became civilian and now it's one of the three riding education centers of Sweden and the, the racing down here was mainly done for the officers and they were racing perhaps three times a year down here and that was to get a bit of courage into the officers. There's nothing indeed more challenging than going around this course and we're coming up to the first fence and actually you, you jump this or well, you change direction yeah you so, jump it twice in this direction and then there's the last fence coming the other way around it's a fairly easy fence okay when they're tired on the way back but i mean the ground is going a bit up and down so the jockeys that have ridden here a lot from here on the left side when they come to the finish they want to be on the right side you can go through it very low and of course you, your family is the swedish jump racing power family <laughs> the person for family. the moment for the moment we are there. your niece is involved as well she was riding in a flat race yeah i mean we have one arab race and then three other flat races we also have the swedish championships in uh, pony racing and last year when the king arrived at the track there was just a prize ceremony and of course the king he just strolled in there and congratulated it was great to have the king last year and they invited himself yes he did he was supposed to come to the stockholm cup there when they were planning all that, and he just sort of suddenly said, yeah, I would, I would like to come to Strömsholm. And he was supposed to be here until the Grand National, but he stayed the whole day. Did you say this is the highest That's fence? That's the biggest fence, yeah. In Swedish, we would call it the Earth Wall. John Franco was here, and he was very impressed because he said that he liked it, that we started off with a bit smaller fences, and then they became bigger and bigger. And then they became really big. Peter Scudemore was Peter up here. Peter been here. Lucinda Russell had runners. Lucinda had, had a few runners here, First Grand National was 71, then that diagonal fence that we see over there, that was the biggest fence. And it's going to be Christmas tree thing. You've got the birch already. Yeah. It's, it's a great show day for Swedish racing. And on an international level, owners and trainers bring their runners over to Sweden more often in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we always have a foreign tra- trainers over here, mainly Germany, Poland, Czechian. The, the English horses, they might think that some of the fences are a bit too high because they jump over them more in England. Here's Here they like the French, they go through, they go through <laughs> yeah, them, you know, yeah. By the way, what is the length of the Grand National? Uh, 4,500 metres. Infrastructure-wise, well, we have the building that used to be the tote. Yeah. The weighing room is 
over there. Office. But that's the only buildings that are down here. Uh, beautiful white wooden rails around the paddock and we walk up towards uh, the main buildings and we're going to have a look at the trophy because there are so many grand nationals around the world now and without ever asking permission, but you did all those years ago, yeah. write to Lady Topham and say, could we call it the Grand National? Tell me what happened after that. Well, she said that she was very happy that we asked her and as a thank you, I'll send uh, over a little prize for you. And when they picked up that prize from the post, it was a big, big silver cup. It weighs 7.2. We used to, when we had the party after the races, fill it up with champagne and it went around all the tables. The Swedish Grand National Trophy itself in a bin bag. <laughs> uh, of course, the owners are allowed to keep it for a year. So it's just come back? Uh, no, no, of course, uh, it was won by Polish. Insurance-wise, we can't send it abroad. Well, they have. So <laughs> the, the, that has to be Scandinavian. And let's just, because we, we've talked about the distance, the only thing left to say is, is how many obstacles are jumped, and they do vary completely. The English jump, the Irish jump, and, well, there are 16 jumps uh, total. 17th of June this year. Johan, a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Zander Brett there with Clark of the Course, Johan Persson. Now, this weekend in the US, we look like we're going to get to see Forte run in his first Triple Crown race, having been ruled out the first two on Vets Advice. He'll be taking on Preakness winner National Treasure, and Nick will be bringing you some interviews with these key contenders later in the week. Our US coverage is brought to you in association with Qatar Racing, whose presence in the industry is being felt worldwide. Just last weekend, their ill-fated stallion Roaring Lion had progeny fancied for the Epsom Classics, and Philly Running Lion sounds like she'll be taking in the Group 1 Prix de Dian next weekend, whilst the Australian-trained son of Zoo Star Astrologist could line up at Haydock in the Group 3 this weekend. Now, of course, it's Tuesday, and so we have our weekly Bloodstock segment brought to you alongside Weatherbees and their Bloodstock book and app. This week, our focus is the British European Breeders Fund, and their marketing and communications manager, Rachel Gowland, joins me now. Rachel, it's the 40th anniversary of the EBF this year, and almost day in, day out in Britain, we see EBF-sponsored races being run. Just explain a bit about what the EBF does and how it works. Um, good morning. Um, thank you very much for, for having me on. Um, the European Breeders Fund is a really extraordinary industry self-help mechanism, essentially. Um, our domestic stallion owners and stallion owners in every EBF country um, provide donations into a, into a central fund that come from from their nominations to their stallions. That fund is then used to support races that are good for the development of horses' careers and hopefully good for the, the diversity of the race programme and in turn the diversity of the thoroughbred. So it's, it's quite a unique system. Um, it's, it's completely um, industry funded and the stallion owners form a really pivotal role because without their generosity and without them standing stallions that, that people want to breed to, um, the EBF would not be able to put the the amounts of money into the racing um, prize money that it can do. And, and that this year is, is £2 million. 
And those EBF races, are they open solely to the progeny of stallions who have been registered with the EBF fund? So when, when you register your stallion to the EBF, then all of its progeny are eligible to run in an EBF race, not, not just in Britain, but in any, in any EBF country. Um, so, yes, it is, it's, a, it's a kind of a carrot and stick approach, um, but um, the, the contributions are, are voluntary from the stallion owners. But in order to run in an EBF race for elevated prize money, your horse has to be EBF eligible. So that's either done by being a progeny of an EBF stallion or if, um, if the sire of your horse isn't an EBS stallion, then it can be nominated in on an individual basis into the, into the EBS. And we've got three races today supported by the EBF from Weatherby, Lingfield and Leicester. They're all maidens. Is that the type of race you want to support? So when the EBS started, it was purely a two-year-old programme because there wasn't enough money um, to, to support a two-year-old programme in the, in the early 80s. So it was this group of, of stallion owners and owner breeders who came up with this idea that, um, that they would produce their own fund in order to raise two-year-olds effectively. So we've, we've maintained that. We, we cover about 75% of the two-year-old programme um, with, with EBF races. But on top of that, it is conditions races it's uh, races uh, specifically for fillies um it's it's things like our siren dam restricted races to support middle distance horses in their juvenile year so it the, the aim is is really um is to help a horse's development um through the initial stages of its career upstead level um with the hope that we can support uh, the really successful ones into their into their group careers, um, but also to to provide opportunities for horses to develop to their best potential. And well, this weekend you've partnered up with Weatherby's to sponsor the Agnes Keyser Philly Stakes, which is a listed race at Goodwood on Sunday. It's been won in the past by the likes of Speedy Boarding, Sea of Class. Uh, you must be excited by the entries this year. Of course, Sea of Class's connections are back with Royal Mealer. Yes, it's um, it's. It's a race that's moved. Um, it's, it's got a new home uh, at Goodwood this year. It's had a, a big prize money boost. Um, Goodwood have been uh, have been brilliant in recent years with their with their prize money boost, and it's one of the reasons why the EBF works very closely um, with Goodwood. And it's got new sponsors alongside us in Weatherby's, who, as you know, do do. Um, a lot of race sponsorship, both flat and national hunt, um, and and support initiatives like this this slot on on the podcast. So, yeah, we're really we're really excited about it. Seventeen entries, nearly forty percent of them are homebred, um, and we've got you know people like Cheveley Park Stud and um, and Shadwell and Sheikh Mohammed Abade and Kirsten Rousing. So all all you know prominent owner breeders. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll get a we'll get a start of the star of the future out from today. Lydia is still with me before she darts off. Lydia, have you got a tip for us today? I'm going to the seven o'clock at Lingfield this evening and the horse is Lulworth 
Cove. Uh, this horse is unexposed, has improved with each start, uh, has already won on the all-weather, ran into a, a really good horse uh, last last time out, Radio Goo Goo, who beat him quite comfortably, but has since gone on to win again and is £8 higher. Uh, Lilworth um, uh, Cove ran a, ran a great race there. He's up against Dark Kestrel for John and Thady Gosden, who's a very short price, a handicapped deb- debutant, first time on the all weather. Could well be all that, but I'm more willing to uh, to go with a bigger price, around 7-1 to one at the time of talking, of Lulworth Cove up against him. Well, hopefully that one comes in. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today, and thanks to all my guests. Nick will be back with you in the morning. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.